We're delighted to see so many of you here, and I'm very pleased to be able to be. I'm going to step over here because that's bouncing my ear in a funny way. Um, Angie's right. It was about, I guess, last October. We were trying to work out time and schedule when we'd be here, and uh, we're, we're delighted to be here. There were some meetings this week on campus, so that gave me sort of a double excuse to come. Uh, the Biblical Research Institute met uh, Monday and Tuesday. That's a general conference committee where about 40 scholars from around the world get together and wrestle with some of the theological issues that the church is confronting. That's a real blessing. It's a real pleasure to kind of be with a bunch of folks that know their Greek and their Hebrew and their Latin and the history, and uh, we kind of wrestle with some of the challenges the church is facing. And after a couple of days of that, we have a new committee, actually. It started at the last general conference called the Faith and Science Council, and that's, again, about 40 individuals with training in various areas of science, biology, paleontology, geology. I happen to be an archaeologist. And then we also get some theologians there, Old Testament, New Testament, and systematic theologians. And we uh, spend two days discussing creation evolution issues. And that's very interesting, too. It's a lot of fun for me to learn from my colleagues, and we share ideas with each other. So that seemed a good opportunity to uh, be here and share a little bit here. So Angie, thanks for arranging this. Um, I'm sort of an informal person, and I know there's going to be things written down, but if in the course of uh, things there's something that you want clarified, don't hesitate to you know, ask, because uh, that's how we do it back at the seminary. Uh, we will try and take a break in between. As I joked this morning, I, we're kind of programmed at the seminary to speak for two and a half hours, because we don't have little blocks anymore, but I won't do that to you. We'll try and break it up a little bit. Um, I'm just going to share with you this afternoon my perspective. Uh, I'm not an infallible person on these things. I do have a little bit of training in, in science. As you heard me uh, mention this morning, I have a graduate degree in biology. And I got into that area because of the creation evolution issues. Not that the church was necessarily having back in the 70s, although I discovered later on that this has been a big issue in the church probably starting somewhere in the 50s and 60s, uh, whether we believe in a six-day creation or not or a recent creation or not. But I was struggling with more fundamental issues about whether God had, uh, whether he existed or not, and uh, let alone the creation thing. So I went to PUC, as I indicated this morning, to study biology because I was curious about that. I was not really interested in becoming a biology teacher necessarily. And I also majored in uh, theology, religion, because I was kind of wondering what does the Bible have to say about that. I had no idea or interest necessarily in becoming a Bible teacher. Or a scientist. I just kind of went into those two areas because of these questions. And so I'm just going to share with you kind of my conclusions, what I've seen in my journey. As you learned this morning, I eventually was diverted into the area of archaeology. And for the last uh, 30 plus years, I've been a field archaeologist. I've worked in Israel and in Jordan. I've had the privilege of uh, directing excavations. I've worked on digs as a uh, bone person. I see Fred is here, and uh, he was on one of our digs, but uh, over the years, I got tired of digging in the trenches, and I learned how to become a director of your project. You get the students to dig for you, and so uh, for the last uh, probably 20 years, I've been directing my own excavations. Uh, we work in a scientific community. I, uh, my project is peer-reviewed. It's approved by the American Schools of Oriental Research. That's an association of over 100 universities in the United States and elsewhere, and I publish in those kinds of journals, so I'm used to working in the scientific arena. But because of my training, I also did work in Old Testament, and I had to learn Hebrew and, you know, uh, exposure to Greek, some Egyptian, French, and German, those kinds of things. So I've uh, spent a part of my career also working in uh, the Old Testament. And one of my favorite books to study is the book of Genesis, particularly the first few chapters because of the implications those chapters have for our understanding as a church in terms of creation. So what I thought I'd do with you for a few minutes this uh, afternoon is share with you some discoveries that I have made in my research in the Bible. Uh, I understand this has become a bit of a hot issue here in Southern California creation, and uh, there's a number of questions that pop up. Uh, as I travel around the world, I probably should say a few things. The church, probably 90, 95% of the church is very solidly behind a recent six-day creation. There's been some polls that have been conducted. I talked to some GC officials, so that's where the church is. And as I travel around, I was just in Hong Kong two weeks ago, spent a week there with some of our Chinese pastors. That in itself was rather interesting because they had pulled together for the first time ever uh, the mainland Chinese pastors, Seventh-day Adventist pastors. They, most of them had not even met each other. And we got them down to Hong Kong 
and they were at our Adventist College campus there, and they were meeting each other for the first time, and speak different languages, Cantonese and Mandarin, and there was translation going on. And they are growing churches like, uh, to use an American phrase, gangbusters. Uh, they have so many churches, they don't even have enough pastors for the churches, and they even have to use, I'm kind of saying this a little bit tongue-in-cheek, women are leading out in the churches over there. There's one young woman in her 20s who is pastoring a church of 7,000 members in China. I'd say about 20% of the pastors are young women who love the Lord and they're working like crazy. So there's some amazing, miraculous things going on. But my point is, as I get to travel around the world, uh, the vast majority of the Adventist church is solid behind our creation doctrine. Uh, they believe in a recent six-day creation. So that's sort of a unique thing in about three areas that I've discovered. Australia down there, a few folks seem to argue about this. Some of my colleagues and friends, some scientists, some theologians. Uh, in uh, Europe, particularly in parts of Germany, as I've traveled over there, there's a few people that uh, don't believe in a recent six-day creation. They kind of advocate theistic evolution. And then a few little places in the United States, including Southern California. <laughs> They seem to, you know, uh, have some other views as well. And I know there's very educated people. Uh, there's doctors, professors who struggle with these issues. Uh, they struggle with some of the scientific issues. Sometimes they struggle with the biblical issues. And again, having worked in those areas, I appreciate their problems. I appreciate the challenges they face. Uh, my own journey has given me a sense of conviction on our doctrine. I think we're right about that. Having said that, that doesn't mean we've got everything figured out. There's a lot of things I face as an archeologist that there aren't immediate and easy answers for, but in the big picture, I still feel uh, that this is what scripture teaches and I think this is what God's will for us is. At the seminary, we actually have a class that's required by all ministers in training. Uh, they each one have to take a course offered by Dr. John Baldwin and myself. It's called Issues and Origins. And in that class, we go through the biblical evidence for uh, creation, the church's position. So they're all systematically taken through the issues. We tell them about the problems. We tell them about the challenges. But we also tell them about the uh, positive evidence from science and the positive evidence from the Bible that supports our position. And probably out of that class, we usually average about 100 students, ministers in training each semester when we teach that class. I'd say 90 to 95% come out of the class very affirmed in the church's position. About 5% do not. They tend to think that theistic evolution is the way to go. So that's kind of the way this course works. But we're very glad to have the opportunity to talk with them and we rejoice in the fact that many come out, the vast majority come out feeling very solid about the church position. And it's one of my privileges to go around when they're out in their real churches. Uh, we get a lot of opportunities to go out and speak with people about these issues. So it's a hot topic in the church, and that's kind of what goes on from my perspective, and it's a, it's a lot of fun to be a part of that. But this is, again, only part of my life. Uh, most of my time is taken being a field archaeologist. I dig things up in Jordan. In fact, I could very happily just go off into that topic, tell you about the exciting things we're finding over there. Uh, we work as a biblical archaeologist. I'm working in uh, Jordan right now, and we've got a lot of artifacts that come right from the biblical period. And for me, it's a lot of fun to see how these things relate to the biblical history and the biblical story. So that's more of what I work in, but we'll delve a little bit this afternoon into some of the issues on cre creation and evolution. Now, my question here, it was very interesting on our campus at Andrews University, we have a group of young people, similar to your Advent Hope, it sounds like. I think they have a different name. But they invited me to give a series of uh, talks earlier this year. Um, ironically, they were interested because of what's happening in Southern California. You'll have to tell me what's happening here. You know, I, I don't know. <laughs> but they seem to have heard some things, and so they asked me to come and talk about the topic. And so that's what we did. And we had three sessions, very uh, well attended, kind of a room about this size, and they were standing room only for there. So apparently this is a big thing for them as well. And they asked me to speak to the issue of can a Christian believe in evolution? Because that seems to be where our church is struggling right now. I don't know of anybody in the Adventist church who's actually arguing, let's go with atheism. Let's throw God out. It's kind of hard to be a Christian university and say we don't believe in God. So no one's going that far. It seems like the debate is between the position of believing in a God who created the world in six literal 24-hour days a few thousand years ago versus 
a God who used an evolutionary process, millions of years of, of death, survival of the fittest, and so forth, to bring life into existence, including, including human beings. Some people call that progressive creation. Uh, really, the forms I see are more of what we call theistic evolution. So right now in the church, the big debates between theistic evolution on the one hand and biblical creation six days on the other. So that's kind of where the struggle is from my perspective as I see it and as people come to me and uh, describe to me what's going on. Now, can a Christian believe in evolution? I don't think that evolution is a compatible position for traditional evangelical Christianity or for historic Seventh-day Adventism. I don't think they really fit together and I'm going to try and share with you for a few minutes this afternoon the reasons why. Uh, based on biblical evidence and uh, some theological concerns. And keep in mind, uh, you know, I'm assuming here that this is a very informed, uh, brighter than usual audience. You're all good looking and more intelligent than the average group I speak to, of course. But we're not going to uh, get into all the you know, technical things in terms of linguistics and so forth. We might mention an odd Hebrew word now and then, but keep in mind there's always more stuff behind the story. But we don't have time to get into all of that. That would take a different kind of a seminar. But the Bible, in a straightforward reading, asserts a few things. And this is, by the way, why I think this is such a big issue for some theologians. Uh, my colleagues at the Old Testament department, seven of us there, they're all very solidly behind a six-day creation because from a scholarly perspective, and that's what the Hebrew says to them. And my colleagues are much better at Hebrew than, than I am, even though I have to delve in it now and then. The Bible asserts that death came into the world by human sin. That seems to be very clearly taught in 1 Corinthians 15, 21. You can look the text up if you want to look at them. We are also told in Romans 5, 12, that as a result uh, of human sin, uh, death was the consequence. That's sort of a fundamental issue of biblical soteriology, the plan of salvation, in other words. Um, the reason we need Jesus Christ as our Savior is because of a historic event, according you know, to the Bible, of where human beings, specifically Adam and Eve in Genesis, they rebelled against God. And the consequence for that rebellion was death. The rebellion itself was called sin, and the consequence for sin was death. Uh, some of my Hebrew colleagues, such as Jacques Dukan, he's a Jewish Adventist, He's weaned literally on Hebrew, very fluent in Hebrew. And he's done some very interesting studies, if you're into more detailed stuff, showing that death was a surprise in the creation account. In other words, there was no idea that death existed on the planet before Adam and Eve sinned. So death makes its first appearance only after human beings appear. And that's where we have a sticking point with theistic evolutionists. As we'll see in a moment, theistic evolution requires that... Uh, lots of life forms like the dinosaurs and other types of organisms, they all existed for millions of years before human beings came on the planet. They don't have a problem with God being involved in the process, but the point is that for millions of years before the first humans even appear, animals were living and dying, living and dying, living and dying for millions of years. This stands in a stark contrast to careful biblical exegesis. I'm not just speaking you know, from a, a layman's reading of it, this seems to be what the text requires. As Jacques Dukan says, death was an intrusion. Death was a surprise. That's implied in the Hebrew. It doesn't come out in the English, but it does come out in the Hebrew. So death makes its first appearance according to the Jewish ancient Hebrew understanding with Adam and Eve's fall. And it's because of that fall, because of Adam and Eve's fall, that we need a way out, a solution a plan of salvation, and the plan of salvation that's offered in the Bible and that Paul is talking about in the entire book of Romans is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to this earth and he died on the cross for me and you to get us out of the death-sin problem. That death-sin problem is explicitly linked by Paul back to Adam and Eve and their fall. So that was clearly Paul's understanding and his soteriological, his salvation model is predicated, is based upon the idea that the fall of Adam and Eve was a real historic event and that there was no sin before Adam and Eve, nor was there any death. And so that right there makes a major problem for having millions of years of dinosaurs and other creatures running around and uh, dying before Adam and Eve come into existence and fall. Um, some people suggest, well, perhaps the death of animals is not a problem. After all, they're only animals. And the Bible only talks about humans. 
But that seems to run into a lot of biblical problems as well, at least according to some of my Bible scholar friends. For example, Romans 8.22, you see it on the screen. It asserts that by the same event, the fall of Adam and Eve, the fall of humanity, all of the creation was subject to death. In some versions of the Bible, it says all of the creation was subject to the bondage of decay. That's Paul's way of saying everything had to die. The word for creation, by the way, is kathesis. And that's a very comprehensive Greek word. That's, by the way, been debated by scholars. What does kathesis mean? Uh, I'm going to take a shortcut and say I'm convinced that it does refer to uh, animal life as well as other, other forms of life. And it's saying that all of animal life and other forms of life on the planet were subject to the bondage of decay because of what happened to Adam and Eve. Their fall led to the animal kingdom dying. So right there in the Bible, we see that animal life death is linked to human death. So the idea of having animal death separated for millions of years prior is not something the Bible actually teaches. They're all linked together. And so that becomes a problem there. I know there's some side issues that we could explore there, but at the end of the day, this seems to make the best sense to me out of the biblical material. Therefore, salvation is possible in, only in Jesus Christ, according to Romans 3. And when Jesus fixes the planet, when he saves me and you, human beings, he's also going to fix the rest of the planet, the rest of the Catesis. It, uh, the text goes on to say in Romans 8 that they're waiting for the sons of God, and I'll be politically correct and say the daughters of God as well, like C.S. Lewis says, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, that the entire Catesis is waiting for all, uh, for all the humans to be fixed. When their problem is fixed, then they will be redeemed also. And it's very fun to think about what does the redemption of the rest of the Catesis mean? I'm not going to get into the debate about whether you're going to take your pet dog to heaven with you or not. I personally don't mind the idea, but it does seem like something is wrong in nature and God intends to fix it. But the fixing of nature and death in nature and decay in nature is contingent upon the fixing of the human problem. So this makes it kind of hard to believe in millions of years of death in the animal kingdom because that does not line up with the biblical perspective at all, which ties animal death and uh, human death together. So here are some problems that theistic evolution poses for mainstream Adventism, and I will also say for traditional evangelical Christianity. And I'll say traditional because in a minute I'm going to talk about a different kind of evangelical Christianity that is out there that is very comfortable with theistic evolution. And by the way, they're uh, promoting theistic evolution very actively. And a lot of people get confused because they also use the term evangelical Christians. And most of us will think hey, evangelical Christians are good people. They believe in the Bible. They believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. But there's a new breed of evangelical Christian that has developed a new hermeneutic. And they're very comfortable with theistic evolution. So we need to be aware of that and look at that more in a moment. So some of the problems, if you accept theistic evolution, it denies a historic creation for human beings. Human beings, there was no historic Adam and Eve, that's gone. I can remember being on one of my archeological digs and one of the professors from California State University came up to me and said, do you really believe in a historic fall? Do you really believe in a historic Satan? You know, because we think of the great controversy between Satan and Jesus as Seventh-day Adventists. And I said, yes, I do. And she looked at me and said, oh, how quaint. I didn't know there were still people like you running around. That's so cute, you know? That's, that's the general attitude in the academic community in which I work. And by the way, I work mostly, even though I teach at an Adventist university, uh, I work mostly with non-Adventists in terms of my field work, because I'm working over there in Jordan, and I belong to uh, you know, a scholarly society, and most of my buddies, male and female, are not believers. Uh, so, you know, we get this kind of stuff all the time. They know I'm an Adventist. They know we've got these quaint, cute little views. Uh, it also, if you believe in theistic evolution, denies the historic fall of Adam and Eve that results in the universal sin among all human beings that we try and preach and teach that Jesus is trying to save us from. Uh, it would also suggest, if you believe in theistic evolution, that death is not a consequence of the fall, but is a natural state of life. I heard one Adventist geologist say that death is a rugged beauty of creation. Uh, that's something I don't think is a biblical perspective. I rather prefer the view, I think, C.S. Lewis, which called it blankety-blank nonsense to argue that death is beautiful. Uh, that sounds very brave and romantic, perhaps, but it is not a biblical position. Uh, death gets bad press in the Bible all the way through. 
death is not our friend, it's our enemy. In fact, it's going to be the last dastardly thing God is going to get rid of in the book of Revelation. It's going to go into that lake you don't want to swim in. Okay, so that's the fate of death. Death does not get good press. Uh, also, the problem of theistic evolution is that there's really no hope for eternal life or the second coming. Now, this is something I'm telling you that my evangelical friends tell me who have moved away from mainline biblical evangelicalism. There is no, because of their attitude towards the Bible, since there is no historic Adam and Eve, they also would go so far as to say there's no historic cross. So the cross of Jesus doesn't mean too much. And if the cross of Jesus uh, really doesn't mean what we thought it meant, that means there's not really a hope for eternal life, at least not in the way traditional Christians and Adventists have thought, nor a second coming. And for Seventh-day Adventists, that has certain implications because we're called Seventh-day Adventists. We believe in the soon return of the Messiah, but according to this particular view of Scripture, the theistic evolutionary view, there is no second coming. The Messiah is not really coming, and so the need for Jesus himself is greatly diminished. Jesus becomes a good moral teacher. Uh, he becomes a lot of things, but one thing he is not is the divine Son of God, the creator of the world, upon whom our salvation depends. Jesus becomes something else for those kinds of Christians. And finally, according to this view, the Bible is necessarily not reliable or valid for soteriology. That means a study of salvation. The plan of salvation has no historic basis in the past and no hope in a future reality. So these little six bullet points are reasons why some of my theological friends around the world have a trouble, have problems going along with a theistic evolutionary model that's being promoted in a few quarters. These are pretty serious theological problems. And it's not just six bullet points. There's been papers and papers and papers and even books written on these topics if you really want to delve into it. And I find that the arguments are very, very compelling for not believing in theistic evolution. So, does the Bible know of death prior to the fall? Is this the happy, rugged beauty we should embrace? I don't think so. Now, let's look a little bit at some of our scientific challenges. And again, I'm kind of oversimplifying a lot of stuff. You go to places like the Grand Canyon and you see a small section of the geologic column. And if you were to look at those layers, if you can look at the picture behind me, you might see some of the strata. We talk about layers or strata in geology. We talk about them in archaeology, but my archaeological strata are not as big as the geological ones. I only dig down about 60 or 100 feet. These guys have to go down a lot further, thousands and thousands and thousands of feet. But if you look at those layers, you'll find dead things in them. You'll find the bones of dinosaurs, bones of ancient animals, mammals, fish, you know, uh, reptiles, all sorts of things, uh, plant organisms. And the problem is that all of these things died way before human beings even appear in the fossil record of the geologic column. And there's lots of them, not just a few. Uh, dinosaurs, according to uh, evolutionary theory, died millions of years before humankind existed. We've got lots of mass mortality layers at different layers throughout the geologic column. This is some fish from the tertiary, probably in the Wyoming area. So one of our uh, teachers here at uh, uh, Loma Linda works in that area. And if you look at this little chart here that my friend John Baldwin put uh, together, you can see a representation of the geologic column. Uh, you can see the red layers are way down there in the, uh, from the Cambrian up through uh, the top of the uh, Paleozoic rocks. The green represents the uh, Mesozoic rocks up through the Cretaceous. The blue represents the more recent uh, organisms. And on the far right, you can see the rough time estimates according to conventional evolution, 570 million years. Uh, into the past for the Cambrian explosion, whereas human beings appear only at the very top. So humans only appear at the top of the geologic column, and this just emphasizes the fact that according to theistic evolution, death has been with us for millions of years, and so it's very difficult to make sense out of the plan of salvation in that kind of a scenario. This is not a new problem to Seventh-day Adventists. This was a problem that scientists and theologians started to be aware of in the late 1700s and through the early 1800s. By 1840, a professor, an American professor named Edward Hitchcock, uh, he was a theologian and a geologist, by the way, taught in Massachusetts, was the president of Amherst College there in Massachusetts. He clearly saw the implications of the new science of geology for theology and for the plan of salvation. And he explicitly addressed these in a book that he published back in 1840 called Elementary Geology. Here's a picture of the old boy on the right. 
And to the left, you can see the front page, the title page for one of his several books. He wrote at least three books on this topic. It bothered him, you know, the, the theological, geological conflict. So Adventists are not new to this conflict. Uh, this is even before 1844. He writes in his book from uh, 1842, 173, page 273, the general interpretation of the Bible has been that until the fall of man, death did not exist in the world, even among the inferior animals. For the Bible asserts that by man came death, 1 Corinthians 15, 21, good geologist who knew his Bible, and by one man entered into the world <coughs> sin and death by sin, Romans 5.12. But, he says, geology teaches us that myriads of animals lived and died before the creation of man. So he clearly understood the implications back there in 1840. So the battles we're having today, uh, in an intellectual sense, are the same ones we've been fighting for 160 plus years, 170 years, actually more than that. So none of this is new stuff. It just is new to us, or at least to some of us. So, how do Adventists, as we struggle with this, how can we explain the geologic column? Those fossils are there. Uh, how do we explain this within a biblical consistent view? I can remember uh, an unsatisfactory answer when I was attending an Adventist academy uh, a few years ago now, a few decades ago. And I remember asking my academy biology teacher, science teacher, we taught chemistry as well, I said, how do we as Adventists explain the fossil record, the geologic column? You know, these fossils are dated by the evolutionists millions of years ago. What do you do with the dinosaurs? And I remember his answer was, uh, something along the lines, well, well dinosaurs don't really exist. Uh, these are just the way the devil has warped some rocks to make them look like dinosaur skeletons. And this is just one of Satan's tricks to try and get us off track from having confidence in the Bible. And I had already been to some museums and seen these wonderfully constructed, reconstructed dinosaur skeletons, and I didn't find his answer too convincing nor reassuring. And subsequent to that, through my biology training, I had many opportunities to go out into the field. Canada, Canada's got a great place for dinosaurs. I have to apologize for uh, you Canadians that I ripped off a few of your bones. But uh, we found some lovely skeletons intact up there. And I had to admit, while I was working on those bones, uh, by the way, they've made a law making that illegal now to take them out. So you don't have to worry anymore. Uh, you have to have a permit to go up there and work, and it's hard to get. But when we dug those up, I was not convinced that these were faked by Satan. I just didn't see God allowing Satan to work that way and play such massive games in nature. So I didn't find that a very compelling answer. Somehow we have to explain these fossils that are in the geologic record. Um, and there is something from a biblical perspective that I find very compelling. Uh, the Bible describes shortly after the creation a unique, and I want to emphasize this, a unique global catastrophe that is known as the Mabul. That's a word, that's one of the Hebrew words all the kids in my Issues and Origins class at the seminary come out knowing. If they know no other Hebrew word, they'll know Mabul. Because Mabul is the word we typically translate as flood. But the interesting thing about this word is that in Hebrew, there's actually several words for flood. You can have the flooding of the Jordan River. We have stories of, uh, you know, the Jordan River flooding. We have stories of the Euphrates River flooding. The Israel Hebrews had to come over. Abraham came over the Euphrates River to go to the Promised Land. It would flood. The Nile River that the Egyptians were dependent upon for life, it would flood. In fact, they counted on the periodic and seasonal flooding of the Nile River. Each of those floods has its own unique word in Hebrew, or they have a similar word, I should say. But when it comes to Noah's flood, they do not use the same word. They use a very special word that's used exclusively for the event associated with Noah, and it's called the Mabul. And in Hebrew, it even puts a dot in the middle of the B, uh, a doggish forte, to give emphasis to the word. I think the intent, and I've had some of my scholarly friends suggest this might be the case, the word was to strike terror into the hearts of little kids as they heard the story of the flood, and God sent them a bull, and that's something you don't want. Linguists who have looked at this word mabul have tried to figure out where it comes from. And again, that's another lecture. I have a whole lecture I give on mabul, but a number of scholars have recognized that this was a singular one-time event in the history of the world that was intended to convey a catastrophe of unimaginable dimensions. In fact, when you look at its appearance in the First 11 chapters of Genesis, Mabul is located in a place to show that it is a decreation 
of the creation week. A lot of people ask, well, couldn't the flood have been a local flood? You know, we have people that want to be faithful to the Bible, but also be faithful to theistic evolution. And they don't want to explain any part of the geologic column by this event. And so they suggest, well, there was a flood, sure. Mesopotamians talked about a flood. You know, the Assyrians had a flood. The Sumerians had a flood. The Babylonians had a flood. That's all true. But this biblical flood was not a local flood. This was intended by the writer of the Hebrew version to convey a complete decreation of the six days. So, in other words, in the six-day creation, there's, uh, when you look at the creation story, the first three days of creation is the setting up of habitats for people and animals and fish and birds to live in. You've got the sky is created, sometimes they call it the heavens. You've got the seas created, and then you've got the land in between. Those are the three habitats, and those are formed on the first three days of the creation week, if you look at it carefully. And the next three days, those three habitats are filled. In fact, this is uh, in Hebrew, there's two words that describe the nature of the world when it was first um, brought into existence. It says, or at least when it was there and God starts the six-day creation, the Bible says the world was tohu vabohu. Tohu, that's not, I went to a Thai restaurant, they were serving something like that, but it's not the same thing. <laughs> tohu vabohu, that means that the world was unformed and unfilled. That's how it appeared to God before he starts the six-day creation. It's unformed and unfilled, those two things. What does God do the first three days? He forms it. He forms the three habitats he's going to use. He forms the heavens where the birds are going to fly. He forms the seas where the fish are going to swim. And he forms the land where the land animals and the humans are going to live. So he forms, and then the next three days, he fills them. He puts the birds up there, he puts the fish down there, and he puts the animals and the humans in between. When the flood comes along, the mabul, the mabul is not a local event. It deconstructs the three habitats that were set up in the first three days of creation. This is very obvious in the Hebrew, both linguistically and in terms of the literary structure. And there's lots of Hebrew scholars that have seen this and know this. They're not Seventh-day Adventists, and they've published this stuff if you want to get into the literature. They may not believe that the flood really happened, but they believe that that's what the Bible tries to describe, a decreation of the creation. Now, if you're a person who's predicated or, you know, pre-positioned uh, to believe that the Bible describes historic reality, that's very, very interesting. Because the flood, what it does is it destroys the heaven, the heavens bust open and all the rain comes down, right? The waters of heaven come washing down. Uh, the fountains of the deep come ripping up from below. And it says the habitat in between was inundated. So all three of the habitats are messed up and there's massive death of what was filling those habitats. All the birds are uh, knocked out except for the ones that make it into the ark. It does say that fish survived. That's interesting. It does say things in that one habitat did survive, but everything on the land was wiped out. So after the flood, you have a refilling of those habitats. They were destroyed. God has to basically recreate the world after the flood. So when you understand the Hebrew, the Mabul was a worldwide event. There's no way to argue it was a local event. That was not the author's intention, and he did not use language that supports that. And we could even get into the, uh, the extent of the flood in terms of the earth. There's four or five different ways that the word Eretz the word for earth is used in the flood story, and it builds up to a crescendo to make it very clear that the context was pointing to something bigger than a local flood. So literarily, a local flood's not even an option for us. Now, if the flood was indeed a decreation and was global of nature, that would be a pretty big event, wouldn't it? And that might be the solution to explaining things like dinosaurs and things we find in the fossil record. If there was indeed a global catastrophe, a decreation of creation, it would leave a bitty, pretty big scar on the earth. And that's what the Bible seems to suggest. Something horrible happened that messed up God's entire creation, and it wiped out all life, basically, except for a few sea creatures on the entire planet, and God had to start over again. In fact, when you look at the motifs of Genesis, they're all universal. When you talk about the creation of human beings, does the Hebrew writers tend to suggest that only some human beings were created by Yahweh or all human beings? All human beings. That was a major point for the Jews because they were fighting their theology against the theologies of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and everybody else. They were not letting Yahweh take second place. No way. Yahweh created not just some of the human beings, not just the Jews. Yahweh created everybody. He not only created everybody, he created everything. He did not, the Jews did not allow second place for Yahweh. 
There's nothing that God doesn't get credit for in the Hebrew perspective. So uh, the creation is a universal creation. Also, the sin problem, when sin came, was that a local problem or a universal problem? It was a universal problem. It wasn't just some human beings. You know, I like to think my family's better than your family. You know, we, we, we aren't sinners, but you guys are, you know. We don't need a Savior, but the rest of you do. That's okay. That's not what the Bible's teaching. It doesn't leave an out for any people group. All human beings. And Paul reinforces this. There's not one human being on the planet, in the history of the planet, that has not fallen into sin. So the sin problem is a universal problem. And the salvation problem, does God intend to save just some human beings or all human beings? All. Oh. I wish you could say that even louder. That's God's intent, isn't it? He wants to save every human being he can. That's God's job. That's his goal. That's what he desires. He loves us. He wants to save all human beings. So the plan of salvation is a universal uh, uh, solution for the universal problem of sin. Now, in all of these universal themes, and I could list a lot more, you come to the flood story in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. When you realize that all the other themes of the first 11 chapters are universal, there's no way you can argue for a local flood because that was a judgment of a universal nature to solve a universal sin problem at that time. And God provided a universal salvific solution to that as well through the people that survived on the ark. So everything there is universal. So if indeed historically there was a universal flood, that would be something that we might see geologically. So I've spent some time going into that, but this has been our solution has Seventh-day Adventists. We suggest that perhaps the answer to the apparent problem of having dinosaurs and a lot of animals live for millions of years, maybe there's something wrong in the traditional scientific interpretation. And somehow, even though it's very difficult to explain, I acknowledge a lot of the challenges we see in geology in some parts, the mabul is God's answer to theistic evolution. It explains how the fossil record, at least part of it, was made. I don't want to suggest that all of the fossil record or the geologic column was formed by the flood. Some could have been formed before the flood. Certainly parts of it have been formed after. We see geological activity occurring even today. But the Mabul is a major event that needs to be taken into consideration. One of my colleagues, Dr. John Baldwin, has suggested that without God's flood, death in the geologic column appears before human sin. That would mean there's no causal connection between sin and death, and the wages of sin is not death, which means that Christ's death is not the wage of our sins, and the atonement is nullified. If Dr. Baldwin, a theologian, is correct about that, then we're wasting our times being Seventh-day Adventist Christians, at least in the traditional sense. We don't need the cross of Christ anymore. But the flood helps explain how that death might have occurred below the human appearance in the geologic column. If we do have a flood, that provides a possible explanation for how those dead forms got in the geologic column. The causal connection between sin and death is therefore real, and Christ's death is the wage of our sins. In other words, Jesus paid for our sins on the cross, and the meaning of the atonement is preserved. So that's why some people get very passionate, why some people get very emotional about this, because for them, they're very... Uh, nature of salvation, their personal salvation is at stake in this issue. So, some of my friends who might be here today, if you are an advocate of theistic evolution, you've got to realize that you've got a tough sale, uh, a, um, a selling job to do, because you're basically telling people that our traditional understanding of the cross is not valid anymore. At least if you think this through, you might try and come up with an explanation, but that's going to be very hard for people who read the scriptures carefully to buy into. So that's why this has become such an impassioned and emotional issue, because the cross of Jesus Christ, personally, as an archaeologist, I don't really care how old the world is in and of itself. You know, I'm digging in the ground. I have a lot of fun digging up, you know, all the gold and treasure, King Tut's tombs that I do every other day, you know. I'm doing all that cool stuff, and I don't really worry too much about how old the world is. I'm digging through thousands of years of strata over there in the Middle East, and it's very fascinating and a lot of fun. But if I'm going to claim to be a Christian, I think Jesus Christ is pretty important in that equation. And that's why I get into this issue at all, because it seems to challenge a good biblical understanding of what it means to be a Christian. If it weren't for that, I wouldn't care. But I feel that it's impossible to disconnect the need of the cross from this other issue. And so I find myself compelled to defend a worldwide flood and a more recent uh, creation as the Bible seems to teach. So the flood seems to explain the geologic column possibly. Now there's a few other issues. We'll try and cover a couple of these quickly, then we'll take a little break. 
and you can go out and see how upset you are with me here. Um, there, first, there's another factor, the denial of the historicity of Genesis. This is a big thing. People that want to go along with theistic evolution, they have to get rid of the six days. They have to, you know, localize the flood. Uh, they often have to de-emphasize the importance of the cross. These are things that just come out of that theology. And by the way, uh, these theological alternatives are not unique to Seventh-day Adventists. I hang out with a lot of um, atheists in my archaeological work. I also hang out with a lot of Christians from other denominations. And uh, this is a big thing that they're struggling with, the historicity of Adam and Eve and the flood and that. And a lot of my friends are jettisoning all of that. So it's very common. It's not just Adventists that are struggling with this. Uh, we like to think we're the only people in the world, but we're not. A lot of other denominations are writing oodles of articles and lots of books on these same topics, trying to make an alternate Christianity. They're frankly quite ahead of our Adventist theistic evolutionists because they've written a lot more. Uh, I, you know, we probably should read what they're saying. Um, a denial of the historicity of Genesis is not only denies the flood, but also the first historicity of the first week of creation and the story of the fall, as well as the creation of the first historic humans who are responsible for introducing sin into the human race. This, in turn, denies the spread of sin from that first human couple, Adam and Eve, the introduction of death into the world, and the need for the cross. At least it denies how these things have traditionally been explained by mainstream Christianity for centuries. Historically, as you already know, Christians have traced their sinful condition and need for Jesus to the event known as the fall, Genesis 3. Christians believe that somehow the results of the rebellion of Adam and Eve against God were passed on to all of their biological descendants. As Paul says in Romans 3.23, all, we all need Jesus for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This problem of original sin is not unique thing. How come we are sinners because of Adam and Eve? What's the connection there? You know, are we inheriting Adam's sin? What's going on? This is a problem that theologians call the problem of original sin. Uh, one of the first church fathers to deal with this was a chap by the name of Augustine. He attempted to explain the phenomena of how all of Adam and Eve's descendants became sinners in his doctrine of original sin. He wrote this all out. This teaching has led to a considerable amount of theological discussion and controversy within Seventh-day Adventism. We're not getting into that. That's a whole topic in and of itself. We spent a lot of time working on this issue in the 70s, actually. But in brief, there were two central components to Augustine's teaching. The first was that all humankind inherit Adam's actual guilt for his rebellion. That's what Augustine taught. Adventists have tended not to accept that. We have a little bit of a problem saying that I am personally responsible for something that somebody did before I was born. That doesn't seem fair. So Adventists have tended not to like that part of Augustine's teaching. But there was a second part to his teaching. He said that all humans inherit from Adam a tendency to continue sinning. As Ellen White puts it, we have a propensity to sin. That every person who is born and is a biological descendant of Adam and Eve, we're going to blow it too. It's in our nature somehow. A lot of people like to discuss the nature, and again, that's beyond our discussion this afternoon. But the Bible seems to clearly teach, and Ellen White confirmed, that this tendency to sin is common to all human beings. We're all sinners. We all need Jesus Christ. So that part of original sin, we might agree with. In fact, we have agreed with as Adventists. While Adventists have not subscribed to Augustine's idea that we inherit and are condemned for Adam's personal guilt, derived from his own act of rebellion, we have maintained that we do inherit a sinful nature with a propensity to sin that is so irresistible that we will inevitably commit our own sinful acts. We all need Jesus Christ as our Savior. Because of this inherited sinful nature, we need Christ's death on the cross to forgive us our own sinfulness and the grace of his Holy Spirit to help us overcome our natural sinful tendencies. Now, theistic evolution, on the other hand, has no place for a historic Adam and Eve nor historic fall. To fully appreciate this, it's important to understand how most physical anthropologists, that's sort of a subset of archaeology and, and uh, paleontology, how they explain the origin of human beings. This is a big topic, but in brief, they do not believe that a single pair of human beings evolved into existence, that there were, you know, out of all these apes running around, just two popped in to be humans. Uh, that's not what they believe. Uh, if we argued that, it would be like this professor I met from California State. She would say, how quaint. You really believe in a real Adam and Eve. Rather, evolutionists teach that an entire population of pre-human hominids somehow became isolated from a parent population and due to a variety of factors evolved into a new species that they define as the first modern human beings. Have, how have Christians dealt with that? Well, the Catholic Church and other denominations have said at that magical moment 
where we don't know how many first humans there were, 100,000, a few hundred thousand, maybe less than that. But at that moment, God magically reached down and instilled a soul into each one of them so that they became morally accountable. And that's the magical moment they became true human beings. Now, as Adventists, we have a problem with separating soul and the body, right? We don't believe that's biblically sound. But this is what many Christians, including the Catholics, teach, that God inserts a soul. And as soon as he did that, um, there was the fall. But it wasn't just Adam and Eve that, that fell. It was the whole 100,000 population. They all decided to rebel simultaneously. That becomes problematic because of the doctrine of free will. You know, it's one thing to say that one human being or a couple of human beings, you know, uh, the Bible is quite explicit about how that happened, uh, you know, with Adam and Eve. It's easy to understand that, to try and explain an entire population all agreeing at the same time to do something a little more tricky. Weren't there a few that snuck off and said, I ain't going along, I'm going to be faithful to God. You know, no, they all decided to do it at once. So that becomes an interesting dilemma for uh, people that don't believe in the historic fall. But here's John Hick, a famous British theologian. He says, until comparatively recent times, the ancient myth of the origin of evil and the fall of man was quite reasonably assumed to be history. He says, until his time, he's writing in 1966, yeah, Christians thought, you know, Adam and Eve really existed. This is historical. It was a historic fall. But then he goes on to say that this view is open to insuperable scientific objections. In other words, uh, you know, the scientific evidence for evolution. We know today, Hicks goes on to say, that the conditions that were to cause human mortality, in other words, death, were already part of the natural order prior to the emergence of man and prior, therefore, to any first human sin. So, therefore, he separates death from sin, basically saying Romans is out, Paul is wrong, and the idea of needing Jesus to save us from the historic fall is an illusion. It's mythological. This was reinforced by the famous Catholic theologian Hans Kuhn. The famous theologian uh, quotes with favor his fellow Catholic theistic evolutionist Carl Schmitz Mormon as follows. He writes, the notion of the traditional view of redemption has reconciliation and ransom from the consequences of Adam's fall is nonsense. For anyone who knows about the evolutionary background of human existence in the modern world. And Kuhn is right. If you accept the scientific evidence and make that your authority, then traditional Christianity is nonsense. That's why the stakes are so high. I'm not willing to say it's nonsense. And I think most thinking Christians are not willing to give up so easily either. And that's why there's going to be resistance. No matter how hard some people push for theistic evolution, within the church it won't win because the stakes are too high. Too many people have had the personal experience of Jesus Christ as their Savior. They understand what his death on the cross means, and they will never, never, never give that up. It's become too precious to them. So, will there be reconciliation between those two views? I don't think so. It's impossible. Carl Schmitz Mormon goes on to tell us that the new, what the new meaning of redemption must be. He says, salvation cannot mean returning to an original state, but must be conceived as perfecting through the process of evolution. So evolution becomes our new uh, savior. We will get better and better through millions of years of time. In fact, I've read a few articles that suggest, uh, according to some of these people in this line of thinking, that eventually evolution will so perfect human existence that we'll no longer need our physical bodies. I have one of these articles in my, my uh, file. Eventually the soul will be freed from the encumbersome you know, reality of the body and will be disembodied spirits and souls, intelligent entities that will float around out there. And this will be the ultimate goal of salvation when God can free us through the process of evolution from our physical bodies. And then we'll have immortality, the immortality of the disembodied soul. That's very true. That's what's actually being proposed in a lot of articles out there. And that's a logical consequence if you deny the traditional Adventist view of a physical body, uh, an actual death, and then a hope for a physical resurrection at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So you can see that this alternate view, which a lot of denominations are accepting, is diametrically opposed to the traditional Adventist view, which tries to hew very closely to what the biblical text actually says. We hope in a physical resurrection. Paul says, I tell you a mystery 
that this mortal flesh will what? Put on immortality. That doesn't mean we're going to become disembodied spirits, but we're going to have a different nature to our existence. Apparently something equivalent to what Adam and Eve had before the fall. They had real existence, but they had an immortal physical existence until sin started corrupting it. And then it would die and decompose and go into the ground. But this is the alternate view, as Hans Kung has uh, suggested. Uh, is it possible to reinterpret the Bible so that it supports a non-historical soteriology plan of salvation? Many have tried, including certain groups of evangelical Christians. I have, in my own reading, read a lot of literature on this for the course we teach Issues and Origins. I've seen that in the last oh, 30, 40 years, the Christian... Christians in North America divided into three basic groups. That includes a lot of subgroups, so it's uh, you know, uh, a bit more complicated. But you can boil them down, I think, into three basic hermeneutical divisions. First, the first group of people are called Orthodox Evangelical. These are Christians who believe the Bible pretty much as it reads. In other words, when you read about Adam and Eve, there really wasn't Adam and Eve. When you read about the Israelites crossing through the Red Sea, they really did cross through the Red Sea. It was miraculously opened up and they were led by a real guy named Moses. Okay, that's the traditional Orthodox view and Adventists historically have agreed with this type of an interpretation. But there's a new group that's emerged that a lot of people are not aware of, partly because they have a lot of different names. And again, there's whole books written on each of these topics. There's a group called Neo-Orthodox Evangelical Christians. There are Neo-Evangelical Christians. There are Neo-Reformed Christians. There are Young Evangelicals, and they even have Younger Evangelicals. These all have their own little sub-movements, but they all agree on one basic thing. This is very interesting. There's a lot of books in which they advocate their view. They argue that the Bible is not intended to be read literally in most cases. So when you come to stories like the creation story, they don't believe it's necessary to believe it historical. They don't believe in a real Adam and Eve. They don't believe in a historic fall. They still believe in Jesus, but Jesus has taken on new meanings for them. Okay, so this is, they accept the historical critical interpretation of the Old Testament, JEDP, the documentary hypothesis, and all those things that you hear about maybe in the university or somewhere. I don't know where you pick that stuff up, but it's taught in mainstream universities. Uh, these evangelicals are accepting all of this. They say, we don't really care whether the Bible's historical or not as long as we focus on Jesus. And the focus on Jesus isn't so much on the cross, it's really on his moral good life and doing social good in society. That has become the new focus for this new evangelical movement. It's very popular in the United States. Some refer to it as the emergent church and so forth. This stuff is what all my theological buddies back in the seminary talk about. Then there's a third group, and this is the, what I call the academic liberals. This is how I was trained at uh, California State University and at the University of Arizona where I got my PhD. The professors there were not evangelicals. They were classical liberals. Uh, what's interesting about them is they actually believe that whoever wrote the Bible actually believed that the stuff they were writing was true. That's fascinating to me. But they don't believe that the um, events really happened. So my uh, liberal colleagues and professors, I was just with one in Emory University, I gave a lecture there last week. Uh, no problem believing that whoever wrote the Bible believed that there was a flood, believed that axe heads can float in water, believed that the Red Sea opened. Yes, that's what the writer thought, but because he's a modern scientific man, he knows that those things didn't really happen. So you have this weird kind of a three-part division. You've got traditional Orthodox evangelicals. They say these stories really happened, and the author intended them to be understood that way. Then you've got the neo-evangelicals. They say um, the stories didn't really happen. <laughs> then you've got the liberals that say the author intended the stories to be uh, understood as true, but we know they're not. So the liberal interpretation and the traditional Orthodox are actually the same, that the author intended the stories to be true. But the difference is that the Orthodox say they really did happen, and the liberal says, no, they didn't. Then you got this big group in between that says, no, there was never any intention for the stories to be understood literally. That middle group, by the way, is where we get the literature that says the days of creation are not real days. It's in their literature. It's not from liberal literature. It comes from this neo-evangelical group, and I'll document that in just a moment. So that's, and they also are the ones that will say the flood was not a real flood. And perhaps there was not a historic Adam and Eve. It all comes from the neo-evangelicals. They sound and walk and talk similar to traditional Adventists, but they're not the same thing. They're not even real liberals. 
They're their own thing. They're a third group, and they're the most recent of the hermeneutical schools. Most of my Adventist students, and even some of my professors in the seminary, are totally unaware of this fifth column, if you wish, in terms of hermeneutics. But it's very fascinating, and the literature is out there in books and articles if you want to get into it and read it. Here's an example of this fight, and I'm going a little bit long, but maybe you can bear with me here. Here's an example of the hermeneutical divide on Genesis. Uh, this was illustrated by a debate that took place, uh, by the way, uh, Notre Dame is just south of Andrews University. We've actually had Plantinga, the guy on the left, up to us. Uh, Alvin Plantinga, a world-class philosopher, Christian philosopher, a dying breed, because there's not too many Christian philosophers anymore, they're just philosophers. But anyway, he was teaching at uh, Notre Dame, and then there was his colleague uh, to the right, uh, McMullen. He also teaches philosophy. Now, uh, interestingly, Alvin Plantinga is not a Catholic. Uh, he teaches at the Catholic University. Uh, he kind of jokes, you know, they wanted to have a little diversity, so they invited him to come down. And he thought, oh, cool, maybe I'll be the first non-Catholic pope teaching. He joked with me about that. You know, I'll be the first non-Catholic pope. And then he realized they weren't going to let him be a pope because he came from a Calvin background. He said, well, maybe they'll let me be the coach of Notre Dame, you know, football team. That would be cool. But they didn't let that happen either. But anyway, they let him teach there. And then they had uh, McMullen. And they got into an argument that was in print, a scholarly argument. And McMullen makes this neo evangelical argument, even though he's a Catholic. He argues that the great majority of contemporary scripture scholars agree that to interpret early Genesis literally, in other words, the days are days and the flood was a real flood and so forth, or even quasi-literally, is to misunderstand the point that the writers of those narratives were trying to make. That's exactly what the neo-evangelical scholars and the neo-reformed and the young and younger evangelicals are trying to say, that these stories are all symbolic. They're not to be understood historically or literally. Now, when he said this, Plantinga, who's more famous than McMullen, poor Ernan McMullen, anyway, Plantinga wrote back, and I was kind of pleased and surprised by his response. He directly challenged his Notre Dame colleague and points out that both conservative and liberal biblical scholars hold that the author of Genesis intended to be understood literally. This is a scholarly analysis of the words of days of creation and so forth. He meant to be understood literally. And he writes, first of all, there are whole coveys of phalanxes of conservative scholars, such as E.J. Young and G.C. Alders, who think that the writers of Genesis meant to teach much more than simply the idea that the creation depends upon the Lord. And then he goes on to say there was, of course, Thomas Aquinas, who took early Genesis to teach that God created the world in six 24-hour days. But the same goes for their more liberal colleagues. And then Plantinga goes on to cite three classic examples of arch-liberal scholars who did not believe in the Bible, but who believed that the author who wrote the Bible thought those things really happened. The first was Julius Wellhausen from the 19th century, Hermann Gunkel from the early 20th century, and James Barr, who just died a couple years ago. According to Wellhausen, he writes about Genesis. The author of Genesis undoubtedly wants to depict faithfully the factual course of the events in the coming to be of the world. The author of Genesis wants to give a cosmogonic history, how it really happened. Anyone who denied that is confusing the value of the story for us with the intention of the author. Now, did Wellhausen believe in the story of Genesis? Absolutely not. He's very explicit about that. But he did acknowledge that the author thought those stories were true and intended them to be true. So when he wrote the world was created in six days, that's exactly what the author meant. That's what he was intending to say. So some of us who today try and defend theistic evolution say, well, the Bible writer did not really mean to be describing a six-day creation. That's not valid from a scholarly point of view. And I'm not giving Wellhausen's linguistic arguments. That's another whole paper and another whole lecture. But there's a very sophisticated argument to show that those days were real 24-hour days. That was the intent of the author, and you can't break out of that if you understand the Hebrew. And if you're here and you study Hebrew and you disagree with that, I would respectfully disagree with you. I'll take Wellhausen's side. Then you have Hermann Gunkel. People, he says, should never have denied that Genesis 1 wants to recount how the coming to be of the world actually happened. Did Gunkel believe that the world came into existence in six days by God? No, but he had no doubt that's what the writer thought. And then you have James Barr. He's the most recent in the sequence. He goes on to say, and he's kind of getting on the case of these neo-evangelicals. He says, to take a well-known instance, most conservative evangelical opinion, and he's talking about neo-evangelicals here, does not pursue a literal interpretation of the creation story in Genesis. A literal interpretation would hold that the world was created in six days, these days being the first of the series which we still experience as days and night, 
And so far as I know, there is no professor of Hebrew. This is pretty um, severe. I have to apologize for James Barr. He's dead now, but anyway, he's been kind of hard on the neo-evangelicals. So far as I know, there is no professor of Hebrew or Old Testament at any world-class university who does not believe that the writers of Genesis 1 through 11 intended to convey to the readers the idea is that one, creation took place in a series of six days, which were the same as the days of 24 hours we now experience. Two, the figures contained in the Genesis genealogies provided by simple addition, a chronology from the beginning of the world up to the later stages in biblical history. And three, that Noah's flood was understood to be a worldwide flood and extinguished all human and animal life except for those in the ark. And did you just see what this guy said? James Barr was not a Seventh-day Adventist. He was not an evangelical Christian, really. He was a classic liberal scholar. He was a Hebrew scholar. And he's saying, I don't know of a single Hebrew scholar in any world-class university that would deny that was the intention of the author of Genesis. Six-day creation, recent creation, and a worldwide flood. Now, did James Barr believe that? No, because he's a modern liberal. He believes that the scientific evidence for evolution is overwhelming, but does he believe that's what the biblical author intended to say? Yeah. That's very, very interesting. So where are all these ideas coming from that this was not the intent of the biblical writer? It comes from one group of scholars only, the neo-evangelicals. And it's from them that the idea penetrates into our Adventist theological circles. So if an Adventist scholar is arguing, and I say this, it's a little awkward, delicately, if he says the days were not real days and the flood was only a local flood and that the uh, biblical chronology stuff is a waste of time, I'm afraid he's not a world-class Hebrew scholar, according to James Barr. <laughs> I've also made another interesting discovery, and I say this uh, with respect, that most of the people in the neo-evangelical world that make those kinds of claims... And most, here's where I'm going to get in trouble, but I'll try and say it graciously. Most Adventist scholars who try and argue that the days are not real days, or the flood was not a real global flood, and that the chronology you know, is irrelevant, most of them are not really Hebrew scholars. There's a couple of exceptions, because I've been going through the list looking just you know, in the nature of uh, research, trying to find out different people's opinions. I've discovered that most of them tend to be um, forgive me, because I'm a biblical scholar, uh, studies guy. There's a little competition between biblical studies guys and theologians. See, biblical studies guy, those are the Old Testament guys and Hebrew Bible guys, New Testament guys. We deal with the text in Greek and Hebrew. The systematic theologians rely on our work to do their stuff. <laughs> they don't always know their Greek and Hebrew very well, but don't tell them. There are a few that do, but they don't usually work in the biblical text so much. I'm an archaeologist. I'm very much into the history of the biblical text. Most theologians do that. So theologians are the quickest to say the days aren't real days, but they're not the ones that deal with the Hebrew text all the time. There's a few philosophers who will say that. There's a few professors of uh, religious education that will say that. There's professors from all sorts of different areas that will make those claims, but most of them are not regular practitioners in the ancient Hebrew language, thought, and culture, such as Hebrew scholars and archaeologists or like that. So there's a divide there. You won't find Hebrew scholars typically denying the literalness of the days of creation, the flood, and so forth. So I hope that make that point, because that's something I think it needs to come into the current discussions. Barr's point, Planting reminds us that Barr's statements are within a context in which he meant to discredit the fundamentalist, and that's kind of a misnomer there, because he didn't really know the difference between neo-evangelicals and regular evangelicals, by showing that they profess to take scripture at its literal word. He's making fun of the evangelicals. These neo-evangelicals profess to take the Bible literally, but in this case, they clearly do not, since it is obvious, at any rate to those professors at world-class universities, that the writers of Genesis meant to assert the three things that Barr mentions. And so it's important to note that neither Plantinga or both Plantinga and Barr are actually referring to neo-evangelicals. So this is how the debate uh, has been going on outside of Adventism. Now, why the difference of opinion? I've already made this point. I think a lot of evangelicals want to help the Bible out. They look at the evidence for science, and they feel it's very compelling, and so they want to reinterpret Genesis in a non-literal fashion to get out of the dilemma of having to you know, defend a recent creation in view of the scientific evidence that seems to point to much longer ages. So that's kind of where we set up. What I would like to do, I had a few more quotes, but I want to give you a little bit of a break and we'll come back for some more. I was just with Max Miller at um, uh, Emory University last week. He's a classic liberal historical critical scholar. He's been, uh, he visited me in the field a lot and digs, we're, we're good friends, I just visited with him. But he makes this comment, he says, remember, 
uh, that the Bible presupposes a dynamic natural world into which God from time to time intrudes upon human affairs, does miracles in other words. It is a world with waters rolling back, burning bushes and ax heads floating. It is a world where God directs the course of history by simultaneously instructing Moses, regulating Pharaoh's heart, and bringing unnatural disasters upon Egypt. God hands down laws to Mount Sinai and sends angels to defend Jerusalem against Sennacherib's massive army. Modern historians perceive the world to be more orderly. He's speaking as a liberal. And another of the standard tenets of modern historiography is that any natural or historical phenomena can be explained without reference to overt divine involvement. We modern historians bring biblical narratives into line with the world as we perceive it. We leave out miracles, for example. So my good friend Max is honest with it. He says, this is what the Bible writer intended to say, six-day creation, worldwide flood, all of that. But I, as a modern historian, cannot accept that because it doesn't line up with my understandings of science. So Max is a good friend, but uh, that's you know, where we have a, an honest difference of opinion. So the challenge that we have, I believe, as Seventh-day Adventists is, are we going to maintain our belief that the scriptures are a divinely inspired and revealed work to human beings. If they are divine, if they are inspired, that puts a certain obligation on us to take those writings seriously, even though they seem to at times contradict scientific evidence. If we decide as a group not to accept that understanding of Scripture, if we go along with the liberals, then uh, we can maybe acknowledge that the Bible says those things, but they're simply not true. What I would have a difficult time doing was going to the middle ground, which some of us are inclined to do, and say that the days mean something else, that the flood was only local and the chronology is nonsense, because then we find ourselves in an unscholarly position that has no credibility outside in the world of scholarship. And for people who are so worried about what is uh, scientifically true, that's the worst hermeneutical option. I think it's better to either uh, to acknowledge with the liberal scholars that the writer meant to say what it says, and we either accept it by faith that it's true, or we uh, accept the scientific view and say it's not true. But there's no doubt in my mind that the people that wrote, or Moses who wrote the accounts in Genesis of the creation intended to describe to us, literally and historically, that God created the world in six literal days, 24-hour days, only a few thousand years ago, and that the world was indeed destroyed by a flood. If that's true, then those are the parameters for us trying to understand past world history. If we decide as a church not to go that way, then I think we should go the brave way of the true liberals and just say, it's a, you know, really neat, the author meant to say that, but we just know better and leave it, and then take the implications for whatever they might be. I'm not willing to go that way because of the personal experience I've had with Jesus Christ that convicts me that God is alive and real and that uh, he has a will for me in my life and he's expressed it in those divine scriptures. So I'm not quite willing to give that up yet. Let's take, uh, I've gone a little longer than I meant, but let's take about a seven minute break and we'll come back and do a part two then we'll go into some question and answers, okay? God bless you. <laughs> 